0: Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your God. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPGs, your RPG treasure trove. I am your host and King of the Boneheads, and uh, maybe it would be more appropriate this evening for me to say greetings, programs, since we are talking to, uh, or not talking to, rather, talking about some of uh, Hankrin Fernell's work tonight. Uh, Those of you who aren't aware, hankron has been on a couple times. Uh, You may also know him as Brandish Gilhelm. Uh, You may be familiar with the Runehammer channel on YouTube, uh, where some great content has been put out in the past, including Drunkens and Dragons, uh, several live streams. Lots of great stuff has come from the mind and mouth and camera of Hankron Fernow. Uh, But tonight we're talking about a couple things that have come from the pen of Hanker Infernell, namely Index Cards RPG, uh, the second edition, the uh, the kind of revised edition. And we're also going to be talking about 5e Hardcore Mode, um, which I don't have a hard copy of yet. It is coming. But we're going to be talking about both of those. Um, Pardon me. Just to give you guys a quick primer, though, on, on, you know, what the subject matter will be about this evening. Uh, You've noticed, probably, that I've I've been taking a little bit more of an OSR bent as of late. Kind of moving towards old-school-style rules, streamlined rules. And what I've come to the conclusion of is that I typically will enjoy more of a rules-light game. There are some crunchy games that I do enjoy. Um, you know, every every now and then it's it's fun to play something like that. I do enjoy Savage Worlds, which is not really a rules-light game. I it's somewhere in the middle, I'd say. But a lot of what I gravitate towards is kind of rules-light games that don't let the systems get in the way of what the players are wanting to do or trying to do. Um There is a little bit of a balance to be struck there, not to immediately walk back what I'm saying, but there is a point at which rules light becomes what's the point of even doing a role-playing game. Um, And and for a lot of people, that line is drawn in different places. Uh, Some people think, uh, like, Apocalypse is a little too too light on rules. Uh, I once had a player... I believe it was an Apocalypse game. It was something... It was not one of the Forged in the Dark games, but I think it was straight up an Apocalypse game that one of the players in my Dark Sun game described as, uh, tell a story and roll 2d6 to see if it comes true. Uh, Which, again, not having a whole lot of experience with the Apocalypse system, I don't know you know, how accurate that would be from my experience, but, I mean, th- there is a point at which Rules Light can become why are we even bothering playing a game when we're clearly just trying to do theater here? Um, I have not found that line, but what I have found is that uh, a lot of kind of the old-school mentality about D&D... Uh, especially the very old editions of D&D, are very focused on, you know, limited rules, limited um, aspects of, uh, you know, systems and mechanics, a lot of just, you know, you've got the basic stats that you roll, and a lot of other stuff is just kind of ingenuity on the part of the player. Without, you know, having a, a detailed skill system or anything like that. So, you know, a lot of that stuff has been appealing to me lately. And uh, that's definitely something that Hankrin Fernell talks a lot about. I mean, last time he was on the show, we we talked a lot about streamlining the experience and, you know, making sure that, you know, games ultimately are more of the good stuff more of the stuff that you you know want when you come to the table and less of the all right let's look up the table let's look at all the different rules that we have to adhere to for this this and this it's you know cut to the chase let's do what is fun what we came here to this table to do and you know that's that's really what we're pursuing here And you see a lot of this in Index Cards. And then uh, 5e Hardcore Mode, which is just kind of a short little... um, It's about a 30-page PDF. The physical book's a little bit longer because it comes with an adventure. But it's really just an explanation of here's how we streamline 5e to make it a little bit more lethal and a little bit more uh, kind of old-school in mind. And there are some aspects of it that I really, really like. Some aspects that I probably wouldn't import into my game. Um, You know, but honestly, that's kind of the beauty of both of these products that we're going to be talking about tonight. They don't have to be used as written. They're designed so that you can take kind of the best parts of them and move them into your game where, you know, you, you might find that you know, certain things need to be streamlined or certain um, aspects need to be eliminated uh, because they're really not doing anyone any favors. So rather than just continue to ramble on here for a little bit, let's actually look at the screen share and uh, take a look at these books. Alrighty. So for those of you listening, uh, we're looking at the PDF of Index Card RPG 2nd Edition. This is what we're going to start with. (coughs) Pardon me. Sorry for the extended silence there. Just taking a drink. So, yeah, this was published um, two or three years ago. I think three years ago now. 2018, yep, so three years ago. Um, everything in here, words, pictures, it was all done by Panker and himself, uh, which is cool. You know, he's he's done a lot of, you know, great work here. And the layout of this book, uh, just to talk about as we're going through, the the game is called Index Card, and that's the whole mindset, aesthetic... Everything looks like it's coming from index cards that a GM would, you know, have for a specific game. And everything in this game is designed to fit on index cards. So a lot of it is, you know, taking some of the physical complexity out of the games. Um, Although, you know, there is some elements of... It relies upon uh, you know, miniatures and stuff like that, which he, you know, talks about how to make them and make them simply so that, you know, you're not just stuck with, okay, you know, I need to get miniatures now. It's not a miniatures combat game. It's, uh, you know, there's there's lots of different ways to play. And ultimately, um... Here, I won't scroll past the introduction here uh, to start because we'll go through this. Uh, but ultimately... And this came straight from Hankerin's mouth when he was on the show last. I see RPG, more than anything else, as a mindset. It is an attitude which you can approach your game with. It is a new way to look at, run, and play RPGs more than anything. It's a system. You can certainly take this book and run campaigns with it. But you can also take what you learn from this book, take ideas from this book, and bring them into D&D or Pathfinder or, you know, whatever system you're running. It, it really... You know, a, a lot of people I see, and uh, Professor Dungeon Master, who's going to be on the show next week, he's one that does this a lot. He talks about, you know, taking ideas from... IC RPG and taking ideas from uh, 5e hardcore mode and incorporating them into the 5e rule set. So, if nothing else, like if you don't think this is a good system in and of itself, but you like some of the ideas that you see in it, none of this stuff is hard and fast. It's designed to kind of, you know, like, let's take this idea, let's take that idea... Uh, and really simplify what you know the game should be. Really kind of, you know, bring out the essentials. So here in the introduction, you know it talks about what you're you know looking to do with this book. Build your own world, run a great game, be an epic player. Master your creativity. I like this, this line here, ICRPG takes the stance that creativity can never be tamed, it is a feral thing. Like lightning across the clouds or waves on a stone, it crashes and disappears. It's fickle, impetuous, and insolent. ICRPG is a tool to wrestle this beast, bring it out of its lair, and make your next tabletop session the best you've ever played. That really, you know, sums up what this is about. This is about, you know, bringing your game to the next level. <clears throat> and then down here, it also, you know, explains, you know, ICRPG gives you freedom. It talks a little bit about, you know, balancing the, uh, you know, it's more visual than theater of the mind, but faster and more portable, more accessible. I think that's supposed to say accessible. It says extensible. I don't know if that's a word, but I I will give Hankerin the benefit of the doubt. It's more improvisational than a massive 3D terrain set, which that's another thing I want to talk about, and we'll be talking about that a lot next week. Um, Hankerin's eliminated the need for a grid. Now this is not new to anyone who's familiar with what Professor Dungeon Master does or familiar with ICRPG itself. But a lot of what Hankerin has done in the system is to streamline movement, which is cool. Um, And here he explains kind of the basic flow. It's attempts and effort. Um, Attempts are, you know, what you roll... You, know, you you roll to attempt something, and then effort is like the you know the damage from the attack or what happens uh, after you succeed. Putting effort towards the goal, um, and the reason he calls it effort is it's not just damage, because every every attempt has subsequent effort that you know builds out what you're doing as you succeed. After you succeed, what that means. Um so it's it's your basic uh here's the target number, here's the DC, roll, add your stats, add a modifier if you have one from uh you know any magical items or loot is the word that Hankerin uses here. Um and if you meet or beat the target number uh of the room or challenge then you put forth effort towards the goal, and, you know, you move on. And then this book for, you know, anyone who's wanting to use this as a system in and of itself. Hankren also includes a couple different uh, worlds that you can uh, inhabit for your game. One of them is Alfheim. Uh, which is his world from the Runehammer hammer novels. Uh, he does have novels for anyone who's interested. Those are on Amazon. And then there's also uh, Warp Shell which is like a, you know, science fiction type setting. It's a little bit Star Wars, a little bit Gamma World. Uh, you can see a lot of kind of the influences of Gamma World and things like that in uh, you know, what he has in Warp Shell. We're not going to be talking a lot about that, because um, that's not generally what I'm looking at with this. At some point, I might revisit talking about, you know, Alfheim and uh, Warp Shell. I am planning on doing a video about settings, specifically, as I'm trying to create my own, um, you know, for like for publishing. I'm going to go through some stuff about setting, and I'll probably save... Hankerin's details about Alfheim and warp shell for my setting video So we'll be talking about that and here he talks about you know the tools that you need. Usually I don't go over this, but we'll we'll talk about kind of you know what we need here since this is. An RPG that is built around, you know, basically just needing pen and paper and dice. So, that's, you know, the first thing, you know, pencil and pen. because calls it the ultimate weapon of an imagination. A notebook. Um, dice, you know, it's your 7 classic. Um, D4, D6, D8, 2D10 for percentile, D12, and a D20. And then talks about ICRPG Print and Play. Um, these are the, like, miniatures that he has. He's got paper miniatures uh, that he sells on drive-thru, uh, which are cool. Um, you know, it, it's kind of his take on, you know, figure flats, which, you know, Paizo has been doing. Also, you know, if you have miniatures, you can get your miniatures, your maps, all that stuff. And then he mentions, lastly, friends and food and drink, uh, which I find food and drink is always good to have in an RPG. Um, the first time I ever played D&D, I remember going over to a strange guy who I met on the Internet's house or apartment, rather. In Charlotte, North Carolina, this wasn't Muhammad. That that was he was actually my second DM, but I only played with this guy twice. So, you know, Muhammad's basically my first DM, the one who saw me through three my first three years of life as a role player. Uh, but I go over to this guy's house, and I'm under twenty-one. Uh, they don't know this until I tell them because they're like, "Hey, you want to like you want a glass of wine or a beer or something like that?" And I'm like, "Ah, yeah, I'm uh, 19." They're like, "Oh, okay, all right. I we'll give you one anyway." And I was just like, "Yeah, maybe, maybe next time," but still, you know, ba- basically the. All that to say that the GM says, I GM better when I have a little bit of a buzz. And it's something that I've kind of adopted myself. I'm usually drinking whiskey when I'm GMing. Sometimes a beer, you know, sometimes like something like that. And I found that, you know, a lot of dungeon masters do that. And a lot of players do that. Um, I'd avoid getting sloppy drunk unless everyone's getting drunk you don't want that one individual at the table who's uh, drunker than everyone else, Lucas. (laughs) I've told that story before, though. And it was just a one-time thing. So. But yeah, I mean, food and drink. Part of what I miss about in-person gaming uh, that I'm hoping to get back is this notion of, you know, we're, we're not just playing a game. We're also kind of breaking bread together. We're drinking together. A lot of times we're eating together. Uh, on my Wednesday night game, we would all either, you know, have eaten beforehand or be sharing some kind of snack or, you know, eating food at the table, even if we brought our own. And when I was running games on Saturday nights, um, you know, we, we would always have some kind of meal. And usually we would eat before the game started, um, take turns cooking, you know, get pizza, something like that. But food is always a key aspect of RPGs. So I'm glad that he mentions that. And then here he breaks down, you know, why it's called ICRPG. And says, for years, players have been using index cards to represent buildings, people, locations, corridors, and more. The game simply says, let's run with that. It's also a highly refined and innovative rule set that can stand on its own or enhance your current game. And then this is talking a little bit about print and play here. um, and, And creating bits which are your pieces, your miniatures. So if you've got miniatures, like I do, I've got too many miniatures, um, you know, that, that's what I'll be using instead of bits. But if you don't, and you still want that, um, you know, tactile feel to your game, Hankerin goes to great detail here to, you know, talk about how to build these bits, how to build the print-and-play characters... All that stuff. It's a good little piece if you don't have a lot of miniatures. Um, just talking a little bit about all the different things you can do as far as, uh, making sure that you've got pieces to represent your characters. And then we get into the rules themselves. Um... Talks about just, you know, welcome to the table, a little bit of an introduction there. Um, talks about the importance of the Game game Master uh, setting the scene, describing, you know, what's going on, recapping the last session, um... kind of bringing the players up to speed as you come into the table, whether it's your first session or your, you know, 15th or whatever. It's important to set the scene. I like, you know, Matt Colville uh, kind of turned me on to this. I like having one of the players explain what happened last time. Because, as he says, you know, you can... You can get the player's perspective on what was important and what wasn't, what stuck in their minds and what didn't. And that really helps you as a dungeon master understand, you know, what the players are going to remember, what's going to stand out to them. And it it gives you a way to improve your game. And it also lets the players, uh, you know, have a, another moment. And I think he, like, rewards inspiration for the person who can uh, recap the game I haven't done that. Maybe I should start. I'm bad about giving out inspiration, though. I'm, I'm like, honestly, I should be better about that, especially with the group that I have, uh, you know, giving out inspiration for cool ideas. So. And this also... Um, There's no initiative system in ICRPG. Um, Initiative works basically clockwise, uh, you know, from left of the Game Master on. Which, you know, is good and bad. Uh, I've heard Professor Dungeon Master talk a lot about not liking the uh, initiative boards. And I know, like, you can strategically arrange yourselves at the table... I am a creature of comfort. And since I'm usually behind the GM screen, this doesn't really apply to me because, you know, I stay in the same spot no matter what. But even as a player, you know, we we tend to have our favorite spots at the table for whatever reason. Maybe it's superstition. Maybe you just like, you know, that chair or something. So I like the idea of being able to arrange the table in a certain way. Uh, but, you know... Knowing myself as a player, I wouldn't want to move. Especially if I, like, you know, dug in, got all my stuff out. Because I'm a gamer who has a lot of stuff. I bring my books, like, all my books in case something comes up. I've got a bunch of dice. I've got a miniature. And then food. So, yeah, I've got a ton of stuff. My character sheet or my phone. Because I've been using my phone as a character sheet. Uh, For the past couple times I've been playing, just, I don't know, save a couple trees, I guess, maybe. I don't know. It's easier to level up when you have your character sheet on a phone. uh, Because then you just, you know, put in the level up stuff. And, you know, everything else after that. The problem with physical character sheets is you erase them so many times, then you need a new one. Then you have to fill out the new one. It's a pain, but I'm well afield of what we're supposed to be talking about here. And then this breaks down what a turn looks like, this next page. Um, it's basically describe your action, roll, and then view the results. And then, you know, from there you get into moving and actions. Um, And this is where Hankrin begins to talk a little bit more about the movement system and how uh, kind of the grid has been eliminated. So if you watch Professor Dungeon Master on YouTube, you've seen the UDT, the Ultimate Dungeon Terrain, uh, which is a circle for near range... Uh, a circle for, or sorry, a, a circle where you're close, a circle for near range, and then, uh, you know, far. So, I bring that up because your actions here are move far, which is a double movement. You can move two zones in. So you go from far to near to close. And that's, you know, the, the equivalent of a dash. He also uses a banana-based distance system, which we'll get to in a couple pages. Other than that, you can move near and make an action. Uh, that's you know your typical term, or typical turn rather. So you move one zone and then you can do some kind of action. He's got examples here. Three kinds of actions: simple, check, and attempt simple actions are you know stuff like switching weapons uh you know drinking a potion talking to an ally making a check uh which uses your stats and then uh you know you use your stats to you know meet or beat the target and then an attempt which is the most common type this is d20 plus stats Um, and then after that, you roll effort to see the result of that. So attempt would be like an attack or trying to hack something in the sci-fi game, you know, something like that, casting a spell. That's an attempt. A check is something like, um, you know, looking for bad guys off in the distance is the example that he uses, uh, you know, trying to read the ancient text, something like that is a check. Attempts are more active, I suppose. And then, of course, you can also stay put and make an action. And that's, you know, your typical turn. And you basically just get to do one action per turn. There are no bonus actions, quick actions, anything like that. You know, you just... You do it. You do it and it's done. So as far as the target and effort system goes, uh, this is your classic CR, uh, you know, DC situation the gm has a target number in mind and you are rolling to see if you meet or beat it to succeed in the task you know the lower your target number the easier the task the higher the harder And here he also explains some of the things that, uh, you know, make the targets go up or down. As far as, you know, like making them go easier. You've already tried it once. Uh, Your character has experience. There's no duress, no distraction. Nothing's pressing at the moment. Uh, You have an ally assisting you. Or you have loot that makes something easy. So a magic item, is that's what loot is. And then as far as hard tasks, you know, you have distractions or some kind of time constraint, Um, you're unfamiliar with what you're doing, there's some kind of magical resistance to your effort, you're injured, or, uh, you know, he says here, it's a really long way to jump. And then assuming you uh, meet or beat the target for effort, or sorry, attempt, you get to roll Effort. And this is the... He calls it the most uh, unique and expansive mechanic in ICRPG. And so this is Effort to Overcome a Task or an Enemy. And so examples of this are, you know, Weapons Effort is damage uh, when you attack an enemy. Magic Effort measures your progress in... uh, Casting a spell, deciphering ancient text in a magic book. Um, When doing a simple task, basic work is the struggle and strain of your fingers and brain, and toll, as you toil away, is what the text here says. Um, And then when you roll a 20 on the attempt, when you crit, you roll an additional d12 uh, effort for what he calls ultimate effort, I guess because maximum effort might be trademarked. Thank you, Marvel. And this just, you know, helps you. So that's, that is across the board. So even if your weapon does, let's say, a d6 damage, um, you roll a 20, you'd be rolling a d12 on top of that d6. And then any obstacle or enemy that you're making effort against will have hearts. Uh, That's your HP mechanic there. Each heart represents 10 effort for you to overcome. And so, yeah, rolling a d12. um, You know, a decent chance. Like a... You know, 10, 11, 12, like a third chance. A 1 in 3 chance that you're going to... uh, Knock out a whole heart. And then here's some examples of, uh, you know, like common checks that you would make against a target number. Uh, So strength checks, dex checks, con checks... And it lists, you know, examples here. Strength, you know, holding on for dear life. Stop a rolling wagon. Stand firm against a howling wind. Dex, jump over an obstacle. Aim a cannon. Sneak up on a target. Dodge a fireball. Constitution. uh, You know, fight off being stunned. Resist freezing cold. Outdrink a dwarven king. Resist poison. Int, defend against mind control. Remember the password. Speak a second language or remember a legend, wisdom. Spot enemies from afar, resist confusion with faith. Notice a trap, and then intuit the thoughts of a beast, and then charisma. You guys know these. Resist brainwashing. Interestingly enough, um, that is a charisma check. I would consider that part of intelligence, but I guess it's different from mind control. Because it would be, you know, one personality asserting itself over another, so there's that. Not my hill, not my beans. So, you know, there you go. Although, as the GM, it would be my hill and my beans. So, I'd be able to make that call. And then down... (coughs) Pardon me. Sorry. Down here at the bottom, you've got some examples of pass and fail. Of what would happen if you, uh, you know, fail certain checks. And what would happen if you pass. All this stuff is, you know, kind of standard for what you're looking at in RPGs. Again, this is not necessarily groundbreaking stuff. It's just... Simplify, simplify, simplify. simplify. And then down here you have examples of attempts uh, with strength. You know, you're looking at attack with a melee weapon, then prison bars, smash through a wall, force the airlock closed, anything physical really. Dexterity, ranged attacks, climb a rope, um, pick locks, delicate tasks. Constitution, the only attempt you're looking at there is recovery, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Intelligence, uh, you know, casting a spell, deciphering a tablet. Learning new things, stuff like that. Uh, Wisdom, channeling divine or natural power, training an animal, mending a wound, tracking. And charisma is more, you know, social stuff. Influencing people, inspiring your allies, intimidating someone. And then we get into movement. And so he talks here, you know, to quote the text again, every tabletop player has asked, how far can I get on my turn? And from the rules above, you only know you can move far or you can move near and take an action. So what are far and near in game terms? So this is where the banana comes in. This is the banana-based movement system. Far is 50 feet. And it would take a few seconds to get in a flat-out run. A far shot can be hard to hit or it may be too far to cast a certain spell. And anything further than 50 feet counts as far, far as the distance character can move in one turn. Nears, quick few steps. And he mentions here it's close enough for a spear, but not close enough for a dagger. So anything with reach you can hit from near range, um, but not, you know, anything that would be kind of close up. That would take a little bit, you know, that would take some movement. And the near, of course, is... Or, sorry, near we just talked about. Close is the final movement stage, and that is face-to-face, toe-to-toe, as Hankren says here. And I've talked a little bit about the banana-based system, uh, just to start. And basically, the length of a banana on a tabletop would be near. Just based on the drawing here. And then close would be, looks like about half a banana. And far is anything longer than that. And then he talks about when distance matters, which is, uh, you know, attack distance, area of effect traversal, uh, getting the upper hand, bending the rules, which, you know, mentions here many of the things that make loot and character growth awesome are your increasing ability to overcome distance limits with incredible speed, flight, or even teleportation. These abilities, combined with a sense of tactics, make a formidable fighter. Weapons obviously have different range. And then communicating with characters. Uh, Close allies can talk in a whisper. Near can use normal speaking voices. And far must be, you know, you have to yell. And then he talks a little bit about time. Um... And what he talks about here is that everything happens in turns. So whether you're in combat or out of combat, downtime, it doesn't matter. Everything happens, you know, the player to the left of the GM goes first, and then it goes from there. Um, so, you know, it, it keeps things a little bit more focused. It prevents the constant shuffling of... Uh, Sorry, the constant shuffling of uh, initiative. That's the word that was missing. Wow. Too much whiskey. Even though it was my normal amount. And there's also not a tight time frame on what everyone's doing. So it's not just... It's not like every turn is six seconds. You can do that, but you can also do, let's say... You know, you're you're in free time. So, you know, like every move... Or every turn is, you know, like 15 minutes. Or something like that. You can break it up however you want. And it just keeps moving player to player clockwise no matter what happens or what time frame you're in. Um... It talks about moments, hours, and days are kind of the three units of time used in uh, ICRPG. Moments is you know what's going on in combat. This is your five to ten seconds. Hours are your kind of you know between between battle, and each player turn represents one to three hours. And then days is like, you know, okay, let's say you're in some serious downtime. Your actions span between one to five days each. So basically you just go around the table saying, what are you going to do over the next few days? Which is cool. Again, I like that a lot. Um, that is something that I would definitely bring into my game even in 5e where you know time is very specifically laid out so even in that kind of situation I would still probably uh, you know bring in some of these ideas here because I like the idea of even You know, we're we're moving in sequence, even out of combat. Now, this is something I'm only going to be able to implement once we're back at a table, because it's hard to determine, you know, who's left of the GM in Zoom. That's, you know, difficult, and it's difficult to shuffle around. So, you know, what... Again, that's coming soon. So, you know, once I'm back at the table, this is something that I'm definitely going to implement as far as, you know, we're going to move in order. And if two people want to switch places, they can switch places. And then there's example here of, you know, different things that take multiple days. And then talking about treasure. Seek ye treasures. And so, loot is the term that Hankerin uses for, you know, treasure, magic items, all that stuff. So, ways that you can score loot, milestone rewards. Uh, so, you know, at a certain point, you might get a specific magical item or weapon just by reaching a certain level. Uh, looting a fallen foe, uh, you know, you can find something... ...on a a dead enemy. Um, But one example of milestone rewards... ...to think of... uh, ...just popped into my head here. A situation like in Lord of the Rings... ...where... ...once Frodo actually gets... ...to uh, Rivendell... ...you can think of what Bilbo gives him... ...as kind of milestone rewards... If you think about leaving the Shire up until Rivendell being first level, or even, let's say, first through third level. So, you know, by the time he gets to Rivendell, he's third level. At that point, Bilbo is giving him two magic items, uh, Mithril, Shirt, and Sting. And, you know, you you can look at... You can look at Lord of the Rings very easily as a tabletop because there are certain points in the story where characters are given kind of like milestone uh, objects. Uh, when they meet Galadriel is a good example of this, or when uh, when Aragorn finally gets the sword. Uh, you know, that's a good example. So yeah, I mean, milestone rewards... It's, kind of you know baked into fantasy but a lot of people forget about it i like to keep that in my games i do that even now i kind of do milestone rewards and then you can also find stuff or you know a king can bestow it on you and then here he talks about chests uh not always are you just going to find loose loot sometimes it's in a chest a footlocker Uh, You have to make an attempt and then roll effort to open a chest. Uh, There are three possible versions of this process, either standard or mighty chests. If you roll to open is a natural 20, you roll 1d100 twice. So a simple chest is no attempt or check. You just pop the chest open uh, and roll 1d100 on the loot table. Assigned by the GM. Standard chest, strength, dex, or int. Uh, basically whatever your best is to figure out a way to open this thing. And then, you know, if the if you succeed, chest opens and you uh, roll again. Mighty chest. Uh, same. You know, strength, dex, or int. And this one possesses one heart of challenge to overcome. Use Basic Effort to get it done. Unless you have some kind of magical means to enhance the roll. And then if you roll, um... Natural 20, you get to add a d12. And then Basic Effort is d4. So... Let's say you're trying to, like, pull a door open. You, you know, make your attempt, and then you roll your, you know, d4 effort. So if it's got one heart, you know, you could knock out one to four effort there. Or one to four uh, HP, essentially. And these should, you know, come with different kinds of loot, different things, that kind of stuff. Your mighty chest is not going to have something tiny in it. It's probably going to have something really awesome in it. And then you get into loot types, food, uh, gear, and spells and powers. So you basically have to find these spells in this game. And then it talks a little bit about death. Uh, when you reduce to zero hit points, you're dying. That means you're unconscious, bleeding out, and running out of time. Um, after you are dropped, roll a d6. And in that many of your turns, uh, you are dead. So don't roll a 1. And then you use that d6 to count it down. And then on each of your turns, during your dying countdown, you roll a d20... And if you get a natural twenty, you jump up miraculously with one hit point. And then to stop the countdown, an ally has to reach out and help you. It's a wisdom or intelligence roll, and that stops the countdown. And then you are unconscious until you are brought back with medical supplies, healing magic, or uh, you know sufficient rest. And then if you get negative 20 hit points, so you go below your hit points and then take 20 more damage, uh, then you're dead. Annihilated. And then there's recovery, of course. Um, Let's see what this says here. Basically, so there's this black box here talking a little bit about, you know, questions that hanker and fields about death at the table. Um, and so basically he says, you know, with death, there are different philosophies, but you need to be clear and decisive about death. If the player dies by the rules in total fairness, uh, then they're dead. And then know what happens next. Uh, does the session end there? Um, is there a a new hero to be brought in? Uh, you know, you have to be clear with your PC what happens when their character dies, which is important. And so back to recovery, just, uh, you know, to get back to what we were talking about. So as far as moments go, in combat, you have the slimmest chance of recovery. Basically, if you, uh, if you spend a combat turn, in recovery, meter beat the current target with a con roll to recover one hit point. You know, you can get one hit point back. And then between battles, in complete safety, uh, you can use one turn to recover one heart, ten hit points. Um, and he says here the concept of safety is crucial, so, it's really up to the Dungeon Master to determine what is and is not safety. And then, as far as days go, uh, spending days of time in complete safety, recover all hearts with no roll, no problem. If your ordeal was bad enough, the GM may choose to blight you with an injury or terrible scar. So yeah, that's recovery. And then we get into characters... Um, we'll talk a little bit about this cause, um, a lot of the character stuff is very system specific and, uh, uh, setting specific, but the basic concept here is you choose an image. Um, you know, this is what your character looks like. You choose a miniature, choose a picture, draw a picture, something like that. That's your hero. Then you come up with a story based on the image. So the image is first, uh, which is critical, I think, to the, the nature of what is going on in index card RPG. So just as an example, if I grab one of my miniatures here, this guy, I don't know how clearly you can see that, but it's basically, uh, you know, a big barbarian type character who I've painted as a mole from Dark Sun this guy is going to have a very different backstory from this guy, Marv from Sin City, basically. So, you know, what's, what's the image you're going for, for your character? You know, is it Marv? Is it this mull? Is it, uh, you know, something like a huckster from Deadlands? Uh, Elven Archer. Warrior Princess. I don't know. Whatever the miniature or picture that you come up with or that you see says to you, that is where your backstory needs to come from. Then you build your stats and effort. Uh, You get six points to distribute amongst your stats. Um... So basically, you don't really have a number as far as like, oh, I have a 20 strength. It's purely just the number that you add to your stats. So, you know, six points and uh, six stats. So you can have a plus one to everything. You can do, you know, like uh, plus two to strength. Dex and con, you can, you know, however you want to split up those six points, it's up to you. And then there's an explanation of the stats. Armor, for each point you put into armor, uh, your enemies will have a harder time hitting you. Everyone wearing clothes gets a starting armor of ten. For each point you put here, add one to that for your armor total. So... What this is saying is uh, the six points are not just for your stats. It's also for your armor. And for your effort. I believe. Actually, effort's different, so leave that off. Uh, Anything you do with your bare hands, any basic work, and, you know, bare hands and raw wits, that is a D4 uh, for effort. Weapons damage is always a D6, no matter what weapon you're using. And then any kind of magic is a D8 for effort. And then ultimate, if you roll a 20, that's a D12. And then as part of building your character... Um, You choose kind of gear that fits with your character. So you've got, you know, starter loot that you can pick uh, one from. And then you choose three from universal starting equipment. Uh, So as far as the loot, you've got, uh, you know, like 20 rounds of magic ammo. um, A weapon kit, which gives you plus two weapon effort. Um, you know, Ring of Might for plus one strength. All that stuff. Okay, so from what I'm seeing here, you can actually put points into effort and add to it. So if you want to deal more damage, that's a way to do it. Based on this here. And then, you know, like your basic equipment, you're looking at, you know, a shield... Uh, common armor, which gives you plus one to your armor. Trapper gear, miner's gear, tools. spell book, Rope and hook for, you know, a grappling hook, basically, to climb things. And then you can choose up the three starting weapons. Honestly, I like this a little bit better than the starting equipment for D and D a lot of the starting equipment for D and D because, you know, if you're using a gold system, that's one thing, uh, like your players have to buy their gear, but if not, which I've never played a game where someone's been like, all right, you need to, uh, you need to buy your gear. It's usually just, okay, what can I get away with bringing to the table? And usually that depends on your level. So if you're starting at level 1 and you're a fighter, you're probably only going to be able to grab ring mail or, you know, something like that. Chain mail. You know, that that's your armor. But if you're, you know, level 5, you might be able to get away with full plate or at least splint. So I like the idea of, you know, here's... You know, choose three from this, you know, choose one magic item, and then choose, you know, three weapons that you want to carry. And so as far as weapons, you've got dagger, short sword, long sword, great sword, axe, battle axe, halberd, staff, spear, siege spear, mace, hammer, flail, longbow, shortbow, sling, crossbow, And because of the way... And then he goes into some, like, guns and stuff that you can use in the, uh... The other setting. Because everything... All weapons damage uses a D6. This can be anything. Anything, anything. Which I really like. If all weapons have the same damage... It doesn't matter what weapon you're using. Which is cool. Honestly. Um... So it's whatever fits with your character. Let's say you're Danny Trejo's character from the movie Desperado. Uh, So all you are doing is throwing knives. All you have is knives. You're still doing the same amount of damage. Whereas in 5e, if you're playing that kind of character, you're dealing D4 damage, which, you know, maybe you've got different things to make that better, but D4 damage. But yeah, past that, he's got some weapon tags here, which add some mechanics if you want to. Um, but mostly they're just there for flavor. And it's all kinds of stuff like, uh, you know, reach, siege, uh, sturdy, smashes armor... Uh, deadly, easy to use, elegant, expensive, uh, far, fast, free, giant, cannot be concealed, chopping. It's a lot of like common sense stuff that you can put on certain armor or certain weapons. And then it talks a little bit about, like, you know, gear destruction. So a shield isn't the only thing that takes a beating as you fight your way to glory. You're bound to lose gear along the way. How and if you replace it becomes a big deal. I use a sword, not a spear. Unacceptable. Again, I like that a lot. And it talks here a little bit about, you know, spells as loot. It says if you're building a magic character, you acquire spells as starter rewards, milestone rewards, or found loot. If your spellcaster acquires spells in a different way, just work with your GM to make it fit your concept of magical progression. And then it talks about, you know, each character as they start gets 10 point, uh, basically 10 hit points, so one heart. And you gain more hearts uh, just as you go. Uh, classes, there are different classes depending on your, uh, you know, setting that you're using. So we can go through here. I like a lot of these class ideas because they're very open. So for Alfheim, you've got, uh, Guardian. Blade. Shadow. Archer. Priest. Scout mage, commander, wildling. A lot of these things are very evocative of, you know, what what they represent. You know, wildlings are, you know, wanderers. A ranger might fall into there if they don't fit into scout. Barbarian might fit as a wildling. Druid, definitely. Commander, Mage, those both kind of are you know self-explanatory. Scout is kind of more your traditional Ranger, uh, Priest, Cleric type character, Archer. You know that's your your ranged fighter. Shadow, obviously Thief, uh, Rogue, Cutthroat, that kind of person. Blade. You know, this is like an assassin or a, a mercenary or someone like that. And then a guardian is like a paladin, pretty much. Or a knight. And then, you know, it talks a little bit about some of the races here elves, dwarves, halflings, humans, giants. Then you get in a warp shell and you've got tanks, ronins, ghosts gunners again we'll we'll talk in more detail about that stuff when we talk about world building and settings and you know just how all that stuff fits in and then we get into spell casting a little bit you've got wisdom powers here So a lot of this is, you know, like faith-based stuff. And then you have intelligence spells. Um, and basically, you know, you get these spells as, you know, you pick them up, uh, they have to be equipped or carried, all that stuff. And there's just examples here, um... Then you've got some, like, spellcaster options as far as, you know, schools of magic, uh, spell books. It talks a little bit about what happens if you roll a 1 on your attempt, you roll a d4, and, you know, there's a backfire table. Uh, same with Wisdom. And then we get in some world primers. I'm going to move past a little bit of this stuff because we're not talking about these specific worlds. And then we get into Game Mastery. And this is probably going to be the last section we talk about. And basically, uh, he has this Dungeon Master Oath, which is, I will let the torrent flow. I will remember everything. I will build a world from their actions, I will be an architect, I will be poetic, I will be energetic, I will lift them up and vanish, I will be a beacon of camaraderie, I will be a terror to behold. So to break those down, um... Basically you just, you know, unleash your... I will let the torrent flow, unleash your ideas, um... Don't let structure limit or intended results slow you down, Uh, you know, just let your creative juices flow. I will remember everything. You have to know, you know, the rules, the setting, all that stuff. It's your job to know that. You will build a world from their actions. Basically, you create a skeletal structure and then your player's interaction with that world builds out the world itself and sets-in-motion events. I will be an architect. Uh, You know, you have to design how everything is laid out spatially and also, you know, culturally and stuff like that. You know, you, you, you are a builder. I will be poetic. Um... You know, you you have to bring out emotion. You have to create a world that your players want to interact with. uh, Appeal to the humanity of the players. You know, all that stuff. I will be energetic. You have to have energy to be a dungeon master. Uh, You have to be able to grip the players, excite them, all that stuff. I will lift them up and vanish. uh, You know... That basically, you know, make your players the center of everything. Um, you're not there to conquer them. You are there to uh, see them through the tragedies that you put in place. Um, you know, everything has to be about making the players greater. But, of course, there has to be challenge there. Beacon of Camaraderie, um, you basically have to maintain the the cohesion and the, you know, everyone getting along at the table. That is your job. You are the social referee. And, you know, as a host, you have to be gracious and stuff like that. And then, I will be a terror to behold. Obviously, you have to bring the challenge. Otherwise, what's the point of playing the game? And honestly, that really is the... Like, that's everything. There's, you know, he gets into stuff of, you know, like, where are the heroes, what is their goal, and what stands between the two. Uh, you know, basic stuff. And there are, you know, examples of this for your, uh, you know, different settings here. And then he talks about the narrative and mechanical techniques of building encounters... Uh, so narrative, devises, encounters, and adventures. Um, you know, you string everything together and, you know, basically you're setting out some kind of story arc that happens. Mechanical. Um, these are like specific challenges. Um, so... One's more focused on the mechanics of the game, the other's more focused on the storytelling and you know ultimately what it leads to. That's all good. you know that that makes sense. And then you know there's they're talking about thinking in sessions, what all do you want to accomplish in a session? making each session, making each session self-contained. You're playing one at a time, all that stuff. Uh, you know, playing with your expectations, improvising details, and planning, you know, big events. Because you can't plan everything, obviously. And it talks about, you know, ending a session. And, uh, you know, like when something big happens, as far as sessions go, he recommends... Um, you know, roll a D6 on a 1. In that many rounds, the game's over for the night. And honestly, I think that might be a thing for me moving forward. Because I always struggle with, you know, where do we end? Uh, usually I have an ending in mind. But, you know, like, wrapping it up, how do we get there? So, you know, like, I roll a D6 or, you know, the player who... Something significant just happened to. They roll a D six, and from there, uh, you know, we end the game at that point. That's cool. I like that a lot. Definitely stealing that, because then it gives you know this is the last thing we're gonna do. That final, you know, everyone's final go around gives some real you know gravitas to that. And he mentions that here. All that stuff. And talks about, you know, like what makes something easier or hard for the players. Um, seems to be like 12 is kind of the the middle. Maybe 10 is probably the middle, I'd say. Based on a d20 roll. And then he's, he's usually recommending, you know, plus and minus three as far as CR goes. And then hearts. Um... You know, obviously, hearts are 10 hit points. And then he does talk a little bit about initiative system here, um... While most things move, like Dungeon Master on, you can actually, you know, he mentions a system here where everyone rolls a d20 unmodified, and whoever rolls the highest, uh, their player gets to go first. I do like that more than just everything starts from the GM onward, uh, because even the GM's involved in the roll-off, so that's a good mechanic. I like that a lot. Um... And I feel like it adds something here. But, you know, whoever rolls highest, they're number one. Everything moves to their left on. So, yeah. That's all cool. And, yeah. A lot of this stuff is just, you know, cool ideas here, moving in. Um, And he he moves on, you know, talking into... ICRPG is a plug-in. Um, so you can... He mentions here trade stats for stats. Um, so if you're playing 5e, instead of, you know, I've got a 13 intelligence, you know, I just have a, a 1 intelligence because that's the number that matters. Um, effort in non-combat tasks, you know, you know... Roll your assigned effort. Single target. Um, and what this talks about is the kind of room DC. And what this does, I haven't mentioned this up to this point, but one of the things that uh, Hankerin does in this game is for certain... Certain times there'll be a room DC. So basically, this is a hard room. This is a DC 17 room. So everything here has a, you know, a challenge. You have to hit a 17 to do anything in here. It simplifies everything. Um, so, you know, that your mileage may vary with that. Um. So, yeah. he talks about using dice types for damage. Um, So he says, consolidate your game's dice variations into easy to remember categories when the spells, upgrade, or weapons is improved. Uh, The dice are easy to remember. Um, So let's say you start with 1d8, 2d8, 3d8 as far as, you know, when they upgrade. So yeah, I mean, you know, chests, turn, treasure is cool, Uh, you know, taking away HP and adding hearts. We'll get to that in just a second as we talk about uh, hardcore mode here at the end. But yeah, this is ICRPG in a nutshell. I've talked a lot about it tonight, more than I actually anticipated, but this is a very cool system uh, to use either by itself or, as I'm going to do moving forward, as you know a plug-in to 5e this streamlines a lot of things makes a lot of things easier to remember um it's a good system honestly it's it's great for just kind of taking out the filler for those of you who want to take some of it out and and making things a little bit more streamlined and simple and that's the you know that's the core of it that and so if that's what you're looking to do this is the book for you. Now. Streamlined and simple is one thing. But what about dangerous and deadly? I'm glad you asked. As you can see here. As we get to the very end. We are looking at a uh, skull D2 basically. With arrows sticking out of it and everything. This is is 5e hardcore mode. And this is something uh, that he put out in 2020. Um, This is something that I was actually turned on to not by Hankerin, which is interesting. Uh, This was something that Professor Dungeon Master actually introduced me to. And what this is, is basically... Taking the framework of 5e, adding in a little bit of the index card attitude, and um, basically making your games deadly. And as, you know, simple and difficult as they can be. If those two things make sense together. Difficult as in challenging, not difficult as in difficult to understand. Because it actually does simplify a lot of things. So here he mentions the hardcore way, be fair but merciless, uh, be a friend of death, don't be afraid to kill characters, that kind of stuff, and prize intensity over detail. So focus basically on the, like, the big moments here. And so your tenants here, uh, which he expounds on as we go through 3d6 attributes. You roll 3d6 in order. Uh, No dropping the lowest and no picking where your stats go. Uh, So this is not conducive to coming to the table saying I want to roll a fighter. Let me roll my dice and put things where they go. This is, let's see what I roll. I would allow for the innkeeper rule in this situation, just FYI. But You know, you you roll your attributes in order. Pure hit dice. uh, Roll a class hit dice once, even at level one with no modifiers. And those are your hit points. Hit dice also replace the other stat system. Or some other stat systems. Simple skills, uh, feats and skills, other abilities are compressed into an on-off bonus system. You're either skilled or not. Injured. It's the effects of lingering pain. Death. Um, no more easy mode. One death save. Instant death at minus 10 hit points. A narrative continuance when death occurs. Uh Zymer's Candle. This is like a bonfire system for DD. It's a portable save point uh, that you can use for a little bit of recovery in a you know a dungeon type situation. It's basically like the bonfire from Dark Souls. Think of it that way. Spell slots by level, or spells by level. Uh, No more slots unlocked by character level, or use freeform acquisition. Roll to cast. Basically, you don't just cast a spell, you have to roll to see if you cast it. This'll be controversial. Um... But as Professor Dungeon Master, I've used his name so many times this evening, as he likes to say, uh, you are dealing with the forces of creation and chaos. So it should be a little bit more of uh, you know a risk than swinging a sword, let's say. Because the worst that happens if you recklessly swing a sword is you like cut your leg off. Uh, The worst that happens if you're playing with the forces of nature is you're driven insane by the void. And then uh, characters can only progress to level 10. This is the only thing I don't like about 5e hardcore mode here. Then you have classic experience points where different classes level faster, some level slower. The upper hand, uh, which compresses mechanics, modifiers, and situational elements with the more potent version of the advantage system, which is the bread and butter of 5e. Um, Modifying monsters with your 5e monster books. Uh, Zoned movement, uh, which we've already talked about. And then, uh, you know, the theme of Grimdark. And your uh, your GM style in this. So. Stats. This is pretty self-explanatory. Um, it talks about role-playing low rolls. Everyone knows what to do with a 16 strength or an 18 dex. But how to deal with a 6 intelligence or 7 com, con. Be de- doomed. Doomed. You are a hero of substance. Stand fast. Here are a few ideas to explain your worst stats. So, Grizzled Veteran, you have seen it all, been there, killed that, and barely made it out alive. All the wars and death have taken their toll. What you suffer an injury, though, you balance with cunning. Uh, So, the Blight, a Plague... Um, has stricken you with some kind of ailment that affects you. Accursed, uh, someone's put a curse on you, you know, animal kin, you're part beast. The kid, you're super young, or, you know, iron-touched, a new kind of metal has been revealed by the mountains of dwarves, but the iron is, the iron poisons the veins of some... And vexes them with pain, what are the secrets of the Black Iron, you know, that kind of stuff. So, some explanations for why you've got a low stat. Then you get into hardcore hit dice. Uh, This will lower your HP. So, everything is going to die a lot easier in this case. Even monsters will have lower HP. And it also simplifies healing with hit dice. So at each level, you roll your class hit dice and that is your max HP. You don't add your con modifier, no rerolls, no max outcomes. You can have five HP at fifth level. And then in short rests, you can expand hit, expend hit dice as normal uh, to, you know, regain HP, medical aid uh, non-magical, sorry, non-magical medicine uh, bandages or tinctures are used. Roll one hit die without the need to expend it. Or in combat, you can grit your teeth. You make a con roll against a DC ten. If you succeed, you can use one hit die to roll and recover that many HP. And then it talks a little bit about, you know, what kind of hit dice you're looking at for size. Um, that's more for building NPCs than anything else. Because in 5e, your you know class will have an assigned hit die. Then you get into skilled and unskilled. Um, so your proficiency bonus is basically everything. And so if you are skilled... In acrobatics, you can add your proficiency bonus. If not, uh, then you don't. And that's it. That's, I mean, that's... I'm having a little bit of trouble, you know, kind of sussing out the difference between that and, like, regular uh irregular skills in 5e cuz the skill system in 5e is not very complicated um and and there aren't like skill ranks in 5e either you're proficient or you're not um and either way you're just rolling you know plus the raw stat Although the unskilled thing here, you don't get to add the stat. It's just a raw d20. So there is that. And I'm assuming rogues still get their uh, specialization in that case, which would just double your proficiency bonus. And then injury in 5e. Um, if you're hit with 10 or more damage on a single attack or effect, uh, you can't use Grit Your Teeth to recover hit points, and no roll you make benefits from the attribute bonus, proficiency only. And your dex bonus no longer adds to your armor class. And then you're no longer injured when you receive 10 or more hit points back from healing magic, um, you receive 10 or more points of healing from medical means, or you take a long rest in safety. You're dead if you're reduced to negative 10 hit points. You're unconscious and bleeding out for three rounds, uh, if you drop to zero, and then you get one death save. And if you fail that save, uh, you're out. Then it talks about Zimmer's Candle. Um, Again, this is like the bonfire from uh, Dark Souls. So at designated moments in time and space uh, where they place Zimmer's Candle, uh, you know, they light it. It's in a safe place. And at least one hero must be able to call upon the candle to activate it. It's a relic. And it allows you... uh, You can basically return there um, in an instant. So it's basically like a... It's a save point, essentially. It lets your players go back in certain instances of time and then you've got spells not slots um so basically at level up time you choose three new spells of your current level and they're cast to their native level um cantrips you just use as normal So basically, you get three spells each level at that level. So at level one, you get three level one. Then you get three level two at level two, three level three at level three. And there's no spell slots or anything like that. You just, you know, you cast them. And then you have to roll to cast your spells. And if you fail... uh, So it's a DC 10 to succeed. Which can, you know... Lower... Raise or lower depending on what's going on. Intelligence or wisdom depending on how you cast. Critical successes do not expend the spells. Use limits and inflict double effect. And creature... Or critical failure fizzles. Um... you roll on the uh, volatile magic table as far as critical fumbles go and every day you can memorize your level plus two of any spells uh, if you are cleric, druid, or paladin bard, sorcerers wizards, and warlocks Um, you memorize your level times two each day Uh, from your learned list, and as you memorize a spell, once you use it, it's gone from your head, so... Your level three, you can memorize six spells. Those are your spells. And cantrips are cantrips. Those are your basic attacks. And then level ten. Uh, hardcore mode caps characters at level ten. I like to go beyond level ten personally. So, you know, if it's an option, I say let it go. And then it talks about uh, classic XP. So back in ye olden days, uh, certain classes leveled faster than others, and certain leveled slower. Rogues level faster than everyone else. Um, looks like bards are roughly on par with rogues as well. Uh, barbarians too. Fighters are a little bit higher than them. Druid, ranger, and paladin, and cleric are all, you know, you start with 300, and you go from there as far as XP goes. And then wizard is the longest path as far as, uh, level up goes. Uh, Because being a wizard is harder. You have fewer hit points, you can do fewer things, all that stuff. And then there's the idea of the take. Uh, So basically, you only get XP because of the take. You only get XP when you get back to safety. So once you get a full rest in total safety, that's when you get your XP. So you go into a dungeon at third level, slog all the way through it, and then when you get to the end, maybe at that point you get up to fourth or fifth level. But not until you get out of the dungeon. And that talks about, you know, multi-classing. Um, if your GM allows it, you can get a total of 10 levels and a maximum of three classes. Uh, if you're only going to do 10 levels, then I would recommend, you know, don't go any higher than two classes, honestly. And then he talks about the take and stuff like that. As far as, uh, you know, like what multiclassing will turn your characters into, it has to kind of fit with a story. So let's say you guys go back to the tavern after going through a dungeon, you're dividing up the loot, all that stuff. That's where the take would come in. All that stuff. Then it gets into the upper hand. Um... And so this is using stuff like cover, distance, henchmen, or surprise. Um, Rules are never modified. Penalties are not imposed. Bonuses are not earned by gaining the upper hand. Uh, a character or group of characters simply earns advantage or disadvantage based on who has the upper hand. So if you ambush someone, you have the upper hand. If they ambush you, they have the upper hand. Um, and so it's all about, you know, how to get that. So if you sneak up on someone, you'll get advantage on them. Then you get into uh, enemy stuff, real challenge rating. And so all monster stats are created: uh, armor class ten plus CR, hit points ten times CR. Uh, check and attack rolls, d20 plus cr and xp values equal cr times 200. It talks a little bit about monster AI. Um, for stuff like that, I'd read The Monsters Know What They're Doing by Keith Amann. That's the, the best resource for what does my monster do in this you know, situation. and talks a little bit about environmental monsters, hordes. As far as hordes and, like, mass combat goes, again, Professor Dungeon Master has a great video on mass combat. Basically, you just, uh, you know, for every advantage each side of a mass combat has, you add an extra d20, and then uh, you take the highest roll, and you compare them and whoever whichever side has the highest role comes out victorious in that particular skirmish. Your players roll to see if they survive. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. And then there's the GM style. Um, it talks about Verisimilitude. which just means, you know, basically your world is, you know, there are rules that are consistently applied in the rule. Um, You have to stay true to the material. You have to stay true to the number. Um, Fixed challenge, prestige, when players complete. A block of play in hardcore mode, the fixed nature challenge should come with a great sense of accomplishment. So while everything out there is killing, and and you know murderous, and it's very hard to survive in this world, uh, overcoming that is that much better. And then he talks a little bit about zones, which you've already talked a little bit about. So we'll move past that. And then he also recommends getting rid of opportunity attacks. And there's a greed initiative. Few things slow the intensity of play, like held actions, bonus actions, and other mucking about with turn order and timing. Uh, So you remove those. Initiative remains an exciting part to play. Um, And so this is uh, kind of a different initiative system. It's GM versus players. If the players win, they decide their order and who starts. And then you go left from there. If the GM wins, you go first, and then the players decide what order they go in. And then it goes on to talk about the darkness. This is kind of the feel of Hardcore Mode. Talking about Grimdark or uh, Drimgark, as he says here. And basically, you know, he mentions, talking a little bit about, uh, like, giant evil monstrosities but that's more metal than grimdark darkness is foreboding it's hidden it's not always obvious you know that kind of stuff and then you know creating an atmosphere of dread um you know, all that kind of stuff. There's there's all kinds of, you know, tools in here to discuss, you know. Different ways to make your game kind of grimdark. And then it gets into adventures. And you get into where it says GMIs only. And these are, you know, adventure ideas. That help you just get kind of a feel of you know, what this is, and then it gets into the adventure itself. Uh, Jar of Flies. So that's 5e hardcore mode, and that's, this is more of the OSR stuff where it kind of enters the conversation. You know, that's, that's more where, you know, that kind of stuff comes in. So, you know, if that's what you're looking to add to the game, again, this is a great resource. I like going to level 20, and I like milestone leveling. Uh, XP I find kind of cumbersome. But, you know, those are just my thoughts. Other than that, you know, this is a great tool for lethalizing 5e and simplifying 5e, honestly. So, you know, if you want to kind of OSR up 5e, this is a great tool for it. In fact, the the system or the setting that I'm working on is going to rely very heavily on 5e hardcore mode. It's going to be a recommended material there so yeah that's what we're talking about that's you know this this has been a great you know talk about some of the stuff that hanker and fernell has done um in my opinion you know i i really enjoy both of these products i recommend them highly if you want to simplify your game and just kind of you know cut to the chase these are two great products to do it 5e hardcore mode especially if you want to kill your players and just create something super challenging for them. So yeah, there we go. That's you know that's the review. Both of these, uh, Roland Bones seal of approval. Um, I recommend them if you know they sound interesting to you. If you like Five E the way it is, play Five E. You know it's there for you. So yeah, that's it for uh, tonight's episode of Roland Bones. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm I'm really glad that we were able to, uh, you know, talk about these games. I really enjoy both of them. As I said, next week, Professor Dungeon Master is going to be on here uh, talking about a lot of similar stuff. Uh, So this is kind of a good primer for that episode. So, uh, yeah, guys, thank you so much for joining me this evening. And remember, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) Okay. <laughs>